Last weekend, I was in Kansas City, Missouri, um, and I was uh, sharing at a conference with about 500 college students, and it was Saturday night, and I went to the back of the room during the singing time, and I stood up on a chair, and I took a picture of the room, and I sent it home to uh, Aaron and to Lily and Caroline. Here's the picture that I sent to them. I just wanted them to see where Daddy was and, and what I was doing, and so I sent them the picture, and, um, and then I sent them a text a couple minutes later and said, I'm about to speak. I'm going to speak in a few minutes. And I figured, you know, I'll get back some really encouraging uh, text messages like, Dad, you're a great preacher. You're the, you're the best preacher I've ever heard. You got it. Give it, give it to them good. You're going to have a great service. And instead, I got this one reply, this one lonely reply from Lilia, my 10-year-old. And all it said was, hope you don't fail. <laughs> we got to work on her gift of faith. Our text this morning is in Luke chapter 6, and at the beginning of Luke 6, we find two stories back to back, and they're both about the Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath was the defining characteristic of Judaism. It was the observance of which, even more than circumcision, it determined someone to be an observant Jew. And so observance of the Sabbath was the primary area of religious practice where a faithful Jewish believer would have said, I hope I don't fail. They did not want to fail when it came to the observance of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, we get it really in the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. It's actually the longest of the Ten Commandments. And the Sabbath is a command to rest from all labor, basically all forms of labor. It was a time of worship that was observed by the Israelites from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. And one of the things that was unique about the Sabbath is it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that actually was instituted by God and modeled by God in creation. Genesis 2.2 says that after God had done his work for six days, on the seventh day, he rested from his work. Now, the way that the Sabbath was honored and observed became a source of major contention between Jesus and the religious, religious leaders of his day. And we're going to look at these two stories. In both of these stories, uh, it's, a, it's a source of contention. And you might be thinking this morning, well, a 2,000-year-old confrontation about a practice of a 4,000-year-old command, I mean, what can that possibly have to do with my life today? But I believe it has a lot to do with our lives today, a lot. And the Sabbath invites us into and provides for us rest. A rest that our bodies need, a rest that our souls need, that our hearts need, a rest that this world desperately needs. And it's a rest that everybody's looking for in many different ways and in many different places. So let's look at this text together, beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 6. Both stories take place on a Sabbath, and it says at the beginning of verse 1, on a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Okay, let me let me make a comment about this before we keep reading. According to Exodus, or sorry, according to Deuteronomy chapter twenty-three, people were allowed actually to walk through other people's fields and take food when they needed it. That was an allowance that God made to provide for people's needs. It was it's interesting though because as I was studying it, it was basically like um, Chinese buffet rules. You know what Chinese buffet rules are? You can take as much as you want as long as what you eat it there. If you want to take it with you, this is true with like all you can eat sushi places too. If you want to take it with you, 
They're going to charge you by pound. And I've been out to all-you-can-eat sushi with some friends whose eyes are bigger than their stomachs. And towards the end of the meal, they realize, I have way too much sushi on my plate. And I don't, I don't want to pay for this extra sushi. And they force themselves, and they're putting it in their pockets. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. <laughs> but this is the deal. You could help yourself to grain in someone else's field what you needed in that moment, but you couldn't fill your pockets and your purses uh, and your satchels and your bags with it. So, and so the issue wasn't so much that the disciples did this. The issue was the fact that it was the Sabbath. See, um, over time, the Jewish religious leaders had developed a series of 39 categories to help explain what work looked like on the Sabbath. 39 different sets of clarifications. Uh, basically, they had added some of their own rules to God's commands. And some of them made sense. Like some of the categories were things like plowing, no plowing your field on the Sabbath, no hunting, no butchering. And others were seemed a little bit more nitpicky to me. No uh, tying or loosening knots. So if you're, if you're doing something and your shoe became untied, you couldn't tie your, your shoes. Of course, they didn't wear that sort of shoes then, but you get the point. Uh, you couldn't sew more than one stitch. So one stitch was fine, but not more than one. And you couldn't write more than one letter. So it's okay to write one letter. So, so here they are. They added all these rules to this command to honor the Sabbath. And three of the categories of the 39 were reaping, threshing, and preparing food. And so when the disciples picked the food, that was considered reaping. When they rubbed their hands together to get the, rid of the chaff so that they could eat just the grain, that was considered threshing or winnowing. And when they actually took it and placed it into their mouth, uh, the Jewish religious leaders would have considered that preparation preparing food. So that's the problem here. They, when, they, when they picked the grain, rubbed it in their hands, and put it in their mouth, they had violated the law in the Mishnah, which said, here's what you can't do. So let's keep reading. Verse 2 says, some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read, he brings them back to 1 Samuel, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. And here's the second story in verse 6. On another Sabbath, we don't know if this was the next Sabbath. Uh, Luke's not concerned with chronology here. He's more interested in building a thought. On another, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. It's important that it was his right hand because in this culture, in this society, that was the hand of power. Everybody essentially was right-handed. That's how everybody worked. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether Jesus would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. He had him stand right in the middle of the synagogue in front of everybody. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, now he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he asks them two questions. He says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? That's his first question. And then his second question is, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said, after, sorry, and after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do with Jesus. All right, three things we're going to learn together this morning about the Sabbath from this text. And the first thing is this, the Sabbath is for our good. The Sabbath is for our good. Say that right now. Say, the Sabbath is for my good. The Sabbath is for my good. Sometimes we might read a text like this and, see, and say something like this. 
See, this is evidence that the Sabbath was just for the Old Testament. It's just a command for then. We don't need to pay attention to the Sabbath anymore. In fact, even Jesus felt that way. Look at how he treats the Sabbath. He lets his, his disciples do these things that they shouldn't be doing on the Sabbath. And he does work on the Sabbath, and he heals people on the Sabbath. Clearly, Jesus doesn't like the Sabbath. He's against the Sabbath. Well, hold on. In verse 5, what did he call himself? He called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And you do not make yourself or declare yourself to be Lord of something that you are against or Lord of something that you have come to destroy or to abolish. Jesus is not against the Sabbath. In fact, he's going to take the Sabbath to a whole nother level because Jesus knows something that you and I need to know, that the Sabbath is for our good. The Sabbath is good for you, and the Sabbath is good for me. Now, how is the Sabbath for our good? A couple things it gives us. The first thing is that the Sabbath is a gift of rest. It's a gift of rest. I was reading an article this week from a website, Inc.com, an article by a guy named Rhett Power, and it was entitled, A Day of Rest, 12 Scientific Reasons It Works. And then it was subtitled this, Most Major Religions Call for a Day of Rest, and Science Agrees. And he goes into scientific studies and different research projects that have been done, and he unpacks 12 different benefits to you and me for getting a day of rest. For having time to rest our bodies, rest our souls, rest our minds, rest our hearts. Here's a few of the things that he said. A day of rest will reduce your stress. I don't need you to raise your hand, but can anybody in this room use a little less stress in their lives? A day of rest. A day of rest actually, according to certain studies, shows that it boosts your immune system. It lowers your risk for heart disease. A day of rest over the course of someone's life can actually add years to their life. A day of rest helps you sleep better on all the other days. A day of rest will make you more creative. And a day of rest will help you be more focused at work. And so, even apart from Scripture, when we look at science, and we don't even have to look at science, when we just kind of look at ourselves, we know we need rest. We need rest. We're not ourselves when we're not fully rested. And we don't do good work, and maybe we're not quite the person we want to be when we're exhausted and when we don't have the rest that we need, we desperately need this rest. And when we're talking about rest, I want to suggest this, that rest is not just about what you do, it's about why you do what you do. Because sometimes the real problem is, is not so much that we're working too hard, but it's that we're working in a way that our work is intended to provide for us something that God already has provided for us. And so uh, sometimes it's not just what you do, but it's you're doing it because in doing it, you think that you have something to prove. And your work is your attempt to prove something to other people or to yourself. And so what I'm saying is this, your soul grows weary, not so much from too much doing, but your soul grows weary from too much proving. It's not too much doing necessarily, it's too much proving. It's the pressure that we feel to perform. It's the pressure that we feel to provide. It's the pressure that we feel to prove ourselves through our productivity or through our creativity. And Jesus and the Sabbath is here to set us free from the pressure to prove ourselves so we can do our work out of a heart of worship, not out of a heart of um, establishing our value and our worth before God. And one of the things I try to remind myself on a regular basis is that as a pastor and as a dad, as a husband, as a leader, I have lots to do right? Anyone else got lots to do? I have lots to do, but nothing to prove. Can you imagine that mantra just kind of settling into your heart this morning? You and I have lots to do, but we have nothing to prove. 
You don't have anything to prove. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. Because of the approval that we have through Jesus before God. So Sabbath is a gift of rest, but Sabbath is also the gift of a reminder. It reminds us of who God is. What are some things that we need to remember about God? Number one, he's a righteous creator. And because God is the righteous creator, guess what? He calls the shots. He has that right. You and I don't call the shots for our own lives. We don't determine our own values. We don't define our own truth. We look to God, our righteous creator, for what is true. And when God says that you should rest, you know what we should say? I'm going to rest because he's the righteous creator. He's also an all-knowing father, and he knows what's best for you and I, and he wants what's best for you and I. And so when God calls us to rest, he's not just a, uh, a king commanding you to rest. He's a father coming alongside you saying, my son, my daughter, I know what you need. You need Sabbath. You need rest. But also, the Sabbath reminds us that he is a faithful provider, and we can trust him enough to rest. Sometimes our inability with rest is related to our lack of trust in God. We think that if we're not constantly in motion, if we're not constantly proving ourselves and providing and doing things, then no one else is looking out for us. And we forget that God, our mighty God, is a faithful provider. You know, in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, do you know what Sabbath ultimately meant? It didn't mean don't clock in for a day because that's not really how work was. In an agrarian, agriculturally driven society, rest meant for one day a week, here's what you do. You leave the land alone. You leave it alone. And you avoid work that you normally look to for provision. And so here's what the Israelites would say when they would leave the land alone for a day. They would say, faithful provider, you're so faithful that I believe that even when my hand is not at work, your hand is. And the Sabbath is an opportunity for us to be reminded that he's a faithful provider. And to practice the Sabbath for the Israelites was a disciplined and faithful way to remember that they are not the ones who keep the world running. Every now and then we feel like if we were to take our hands off certain things, the, the earth would stop rotating. Things will keep going with you and without you. And the Sabbath is a necessary reminder. So the Sabbath reminds us of who God is, but the Sabbath also reminds us of who we are, who I am. God liberated his people when they were slaves in Egypt. 400 years, the Israelites were enslaved uh, in Egypt. He liberated them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, God does something really interesting. He connects the Sabbath to the freedom they've experienced from slavery. He ties them together. Now, why? Because the Sabbath for the Israelites was a regular and visible way of remembering and celebrating and declaring their freedom. They could Sabbath, they could rest because God had delivered them from their taskmasters. In other words, slaves don't rest when they want. They rest maybe if they're told to rest, but they don't choose when to rest. And so when God was saying, you will rest one day a week, it was a way of reminding them, you're no longer under Egyptian slavery. You now can rest because you're not at the hands of your cruel taskmasters. And for us, as Christians today, rest is another way of saying, I am not enslaved to career. I am not enslaved, I am not mastered by success and productivity and the number of titles in front of my name and after my name and what the people at work think of me and all these things. Those things are not my master. I've been freed from those things. And because I have a new master in Jesus, I now can enter into the Sabbath rest.
And this is why we gather weekly on, the, on Sunday. This is why we sing. This is why we listen to teaching course. They would, Sabbath was on the Saturday from, from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. And then when Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning, the early church began gathering together on Sunday morning to remember the resurrection of Jesus, which is why we gather mostly on Sunday mornings. But I know churches, especially as churches grow, they offer Saturday night services, Sunday services. And that's fine, of course. Paul in his writings says, don't judge other people based on how they observe like, you know, guard your own heart. But this is why we gather, we sing, we listen to teaching because when you come in here on Sunday mornings, we need to be reminded of who God is and who we are. And I know that there's other ways you can remind yourself during the week, and I sure hope you are, but this is an important part of it, to come together and to gather on Sundays. So the Sabbath is for our good. Second thing that we see in these stories is not only is the Sabbath for our good, the Sabbath is a day to do good. It's a day to do good. Um, in Matthew's account of this story, Matthew and Mark and Luke all basically, they tell this same story. Matthew's account is in Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew's account, he, he includes a little more information. And in Jesus' reply to the Pharisees, he quotes from an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. And this is the verse, Matthew 12, 6 and 7. He says to the Pharisees, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, and here's his quote from Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. He's talking about this exact same story where they condemned and accused and judged his disciples for eating the wheat. He said, if you would have understood the heart behind what the prophet Hosea was saying to the people, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What does mercy do? Mercy recognizes that genuine human need, real human need, like Here's one of the challenges, by the way, in our world today. We don't really know what real human need is anymore. We get our preferences and our desires confused with our needs. Genuine human need takes precedence over legalistic Sabbath observance. The Sabbath is for our good, but when you take a good thing and make it into a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And the Sabbath, which was intended to be a blessing, becomes a burden when we become legalistic about it and when we require everybody else to observe the Sabbath the same exact detailed way that we do. Do you know that even your practice of keeping the Sabbath in and of itself can become a work instead of entering into rest? And so we don't use God's law as an excuse to hurt others. We don't say, well, this is what God said, and so I'm going to hurt people and I'm, going to buy, and I'm going to show a lack of mercy to people. We take every opportunity that's provided to us to bless and provide and have mercy on others because the Sabbath is a day to do good. This is an example I heard this week when I was preparing for this message. You know, on some highways, they have a maximum speed, 65 a lot around here, or 55. And then uh, they also have sometimes what's called the minimum speed right? It basically means like, don't be on the highway, like cruising, like speed up because it's, and what's the heart behind having a maximum speed? What's the spirit of the law behind having a maximum speed and a minimum speed? What are they ultimately trying to do? They're trying to keep people safe. They're trying to keep the highway safe. They're trying to keep traffic moving at a similar pace. Now imagine that you're on a highway and it's down to one lane and someone in front of you is going slower than the minimum speed and you come up on them and you see them and you know that you're going to hit them, but you hit them because you say, no, the law says minimum, right? Minimum is 45 miles an hour and I'm a law keeper 
And I'm going to keep the law, even though it meant ramming into this poor person and running them off the road. How do you think it would go in court? How do you, how do you think that would work? And sometimes we have to be careful that we're not doing that with some of God's commands and laws. We're saying, well, God said this, and so I'm going to run over people because God said that. Sometimes in order to show mercy, we have to have God's heart and the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. And here God is saying, or Jesus is saying to these people, the Sabbath is a day to do good. And we see it so clearly in the second story, don't we? Jesus takes a day, the Sabbath, and he does good. Notice how the Pharisees look at this crippled man. On one hand, they see him as less than he actually is. They dehumanize him. He's just a pawn. Did you notice that the Pharisees are there in the synagogue for primarily one reason? They want to see what Jesus does. Like, I wonder if they even convinced or made this man show up that day to trap Jesus. They just wanted to see, they wanted to catch him. Now, Jesus is brilliant here, by the way, because Jesus actually, if you watch, if you read the story, he doesn't actually do any work. He does not violate any of the laws at all. He speaks, which he's allowed to do. The man stretches his hand, which he's allowed to do. There's no actual work done unless they're going to give Jesus the credit for divine healing, then it's work. So he's brilliant in what he does here. But... When, when, they, when they send this man into the synagogue, they're using him. And we have to be careful that we don't have that sort of heart when we see people who are disadvantaged or lesser off than us, that we can use it. So they, on one hand, they see him as less than he is, but on the other hand, they actually see him as better off than he actually is. What do I mean? There was an exception on the Sabbath when you could do work. And the exception was is when somebody's life was at stake. If somebody's life was at stake... They kind of made the exception, said, all right, okay. In that case, go ahead, you can do something. So they looked at this man whose right hand was withered, and as far as we know, had been withered his whole life. And in this society, at this time, it meant he basically had no life. He couldn't work. He couldn't provide for himself. He was looked down as somebody. He was looked down on physically. He was looked down on spiritually, because many people believe that if there was something physically wrong with you from birth, it was because you sinned or because your parents sinned. And so here's this man who has no life. He's the exact type of person that this law is created for, to do good for someone whose life is at stake. But, but, but listen to this. In this story, Jesus acts in mercy while the Pharisees sit around debating and deciding whether a man with a withered hand deserves the sort of mercy that's reserved for emergency-only times, emergency-only Sabbath mercy. They're caught up in semantics And Jesus is just busy doing good. He's just busy giving mercy to people. The Pharisees are utterly unmerciful and utterly lost. And listen, it doesn't matter how religious you are. If you don't care about the welfare of others, you're lost. And that's what we're learning here. It doesn't matter how uh, fastidious you are in your religion, how diligent you are in keeping the rules, how good you are at all the different... It doesn't matter how many boxes you check. If your heart's not concerned for the marginalized... For the, for the disenfranchised, for those who have less, if your heart's not towards them, if you're too busy trying to determine and, and, and measure, well, do they really deserve mercy? Because that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're getting caught up in splitting hairs to determine whether or not he deserves the mercy. And if we're too busy doing that, we're not going to be like Jesus, who's looking to do good where good can be done. James Edwards, one of the commentators, says this, the test of all theology and morality is either passed or failed by one's response to the weakest, most defenseless members in society. Let me say that again. 
The test of all theology and morality is either passed or failed by how you respond to the weakest, most defenseless members in society. And let me ask this question. Today in America, who are the weakest, most defenseless members in our society? Who are the most vulnerable? Who are the voiceless? This past uh, Friday night, we had a really interesting, cool opportunity with Madeline. Some of you probably saw this uh, on the news or in the newspaper. And Madeline, through this wonderful organization called Team Impact, uh, got to sign a letter of intent to join the Syracuse women's lacrosse team. And uh, we're up there uh, at Syracuse University, and they had this whole press conference, and it was really cool. And you know, they gave us an opportunity to say something, and they asked us to keep it short. I think they found out I was a preacher, so they're like, keep it, real, keep it short. <laughs> And uh, one of the things I said was, um, Madeline's a reminder to us that every human being has inherent dignity, value, and worth. Every person, every life. We don't measure their value, their dignity, and worth by their, even their ability to contribute to society. And I didn't say this because it maybe wasn't the right environment. But for us, that belief is based on scripture, which teaches us that every person is created in the image of a loving, caring, righteous God. And so Madeline, when I see her, she bears that image. She bears his image. Now, she bears that image different than I do, different than you do, but not lesser than, right? Different than and not lesser than. And I remember, you know, Madeline was born at 27 weeks, and, and we were in a situation where, uh, you know, the conversations happening around our state this past week. We were in a situation where Madeline's viability was, was very much a question, and, and, and Aaron's health was very much a question. Now, this is our story, okay? And be careful about your stories. Our stories are not intended to be weapons to use against other people. Our stories are windows so that people can see into our lives, see our values, and see who we are. So this is, this is just our story. And our story was that I saw Madeline at 27 weeks lying there on a gurney, two pounds, one and a half ounces. And when I saw her, I knew she bears the image of God. She bears his image. And so she has this inherent value and this inherent worth. And the scriptures have a lot to say about uh, little ones like Madeline. In Jeremiah chapter one, verse five, we find this very famous verse that, that gives us confidence. The prophet says, before, through God, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And God says before, uh, bef- in, in other places throughout scripture, he says before you were even in the womb, I chose you. I loved you. I had a plan and a purpose for your life. How do we show mercy to the defenseless? How do we show mercy to those who have no voice? You know, in light of the legislation passed earlier this week in our state, how do we respond? How do we do good? How do we show mercy? The first thing I want to say is this. We, show, we start by showing mercy to those who may carry pain and regret and confusion, and even guilt from decisions in their past. That's where we start. And if you can't start there, don't even move forward. That's where we start. We start by showing mercy to people who have things in their past that cause them pain. And listen, uh, Aaron and I were in that moment. Like, I know what that moment is like when you're hearing things about your baby's health, and you're hearing that your wife's health is at stake, and I know that those are confusing moments. Those are scary moments. And it's hard to think clearly, and it's hard to actually be convinced that any of the options are good. So until you've been in that moment, you don't really understand the difficulty and and the fear and the confusion. And that's two people who grew up in strong homes 
who had a strong faith in Jesus, who were married and who had kids. I mean, the, our situation is unique. Now, there's different, circumstance, there's different circumstances in people's lives that make that decision even more confusing and scary. And if we can't have mercy on people who are in those situations, then we don't have the heart of Jesus, okay? So we need to start by having mercy on people. And the church is never a place to extend judgment and condemnation. Listen, if Jesus didn't come to condemn, then you and I weren't sent to condemn. Okay, And Jesus makes it very clear in John chapter 3. He says, I was sent to the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And the woman who was caught in sin, he said, where are those who condemn you? They're not around anymore. Well, neither do I. I don't condemn you. Okay, So God, protect our hearts. right? Protect our hearts. Help us to have the heart of mercy towards people. Jesus never walked into someone's pain to pile on. Jesus never walked into someone's pain to make them take account for all the things. He wanted to lead them into new life, into new hope and into salvation. Here's another, thing, here's another way I think we should respond. When we can, we should consider choosing conversations over statements. Conversations over statements. Because conversations, I mean, you can make a statement from a distance, but to have a conversation, you have to be close to the person. You can have a statement go one direction, but conversations are both directions. You don't need to know other people's stories to make statements. But to have conversations, you have to listen and hear their stories. And so as followers of Jesus, this is how we model Jesus' life. What did Jesus do? Did he sit in heaven and just shout down statements to us? He drew near, and he had conversations with us one at a time. So when we can, choose conversations over statements. Here's another thing that we should do as the people of God. We should speak the truth. We should. We should speak the truth, and we should look to Scripture uh, and not culture to determine the value of a life and the definition of life. And even science itself has a lot of really interesting things to say about the definition of life that might be even surprising to people. When does life actually begin? And we need to be informed on this conversation, and we need to read Scripture, we need to be informed, and we need to speak the truth. And as we speak the truth, we need to always, as we're instructed in Scriptures, to speak the truth in love, because as much as what you say matters, how you say it and why you say it matters a lot more. It really does. As much as what you say matters, and what you say does matter, don't get me wrong, what you say and what the church says and our ability to give a voice to those who have no voice, it matters. We're accountable to do so because we're accountable to give mercy to those who are the most vulnerable, uh, the, the, most, um, um, the, the most defeated in our culture, in our society. We're responsible to do so. So what we say matters, but how we say it matters and why we say it matters too. And we should always be looking into our own hearts to say, God, save me from the sort of selfishness that I'm so quick to accuse other people of. And save me from the same hard-heartedness that I'm quick to accuse other people of. And then lastly, what do we do? Well, this is actually first. We pray. We pray. Pray. Pray for our leaders in our state. Pray for righteousness. Pray for protection. Pray for families. I mean, the breakdown is in the family. Pray for families. Pray for people to know Jesus. Pray for people to experience God's love. And pray that anybody who has to make a decision that puts them in maybe a category that we would say, you made a mistake or you did something you shouldn't have done, pray that we'll always have mercy because we've received so much mercy. And when you don't realize how much mercy you've received, you become stingy with the mercy that you give right? And so who do you this morning need to show mercy to? It's probably the type of person that you think least deserves it. Whoever you think least deserves mercy, they're probably the person that needs mercy the most. And God gives us the Sabbath because it's a reminder. It's a day to do good, to do good and to show mercy. And Jesus walks into that synagogue on that day and he shows 
mercy. How many of you are thankful that God walked into your life one day and showed mercy and showed mercy? All right, last thing this morning is this. Jesus, the Sabbath is for our good. The Sabbath is a day to do good. And then lastly, Jesus gives us Sabbath for good. Jesus gives us Sabbath for good or forever, forever. Now, Jesus' answer to the Pharisees in the first story is a little weird. He goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, which is the book we're studying together on Wednesday nights. And he tells this story about David. And David is just found out that King Saul hates him and wants to kill him. And David is just met with Jonathan, and Jonathan said, David, it's real. You got to run. You got to get out of here. Jonathan and David were best friends. Jonathan was the son of this murderous king, King Saul. So David's on the run from King Saul, and the first place he goes is to a land named Nob, and he meets a guy there named Ahimelech, who is the priest in Nob. And he says, we're hungry. Can you spare some bread? And Ahimelech says, the only bread that we have here is what's called the bread of the presence the bread of the presence. And the bread of the presence was 12 loaves of bread that would have been laid out on a table in the presence of God in two rows of six. And they would bake this fresh bread every week and they would put it on the table and they would allow it to just be in God's presence for six days. And then they would bake more bread and they would come in, they would put fresh bread in and then the bread that had been sitting there for six days, then the priest got to eat it. I'm sure the priest were like, thanks. Six day old bread, awesome. Croutons, that's all I get ever, croutons. And so, but six loaves of bread, or 12 loaves of bread, and David, now there's a, there's a lot of confusion around this story, but here's how I read it. At best, David misleads the priest. At worst, he just flat out lies to him and deceives him. So David doesn't do anything honorable here, really, and he does something out of desperate need. And then Jesus makes this his example. Now that confused me. Is Jesus teaching what we would call situational ethics here? Depending on the situation, you choose what's right and what's wrong. Is he saying, well, Jesus almost sounds like a kid saying, he broke the rules, I can break the rules. Is that what's happening here? Why did Jesus use this story? And here's why Jesus used this story. Because the religious leaders of that day, they would have looked at that story and they would have let David off. They would have said, well, David's fine. What he did was fine, it's justified. Why? Ultimately, this is why. Because of who David was. Because they knew the rest of the story. They knew who David was. And David loomed large in their history, in their past. Jesus was saying, you're letting David off because you know who he is. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? When he said that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus was asserting that he was greater than the Sabbath because lordship declares supremacy. If you're the Lord of something, you're over it. So Jesus is saying, you thought David was impressive and you let him get away with that. Well, do you know who I am? If you knew who I was, I'm the greater Sabbath. I'm the true and better Sabbath because I've come not just to give you a day of rest, but to give you a life of rest and to give you an eternity of rest, and to supply in me everything the Sabbath was meant to give, peace, rest, restoration, communion. And as Lord of the Sabbath, he shows mercy, and he meets your deepest spiritual need of regeneration, renewal, peace, and rest. Now, how did Jesus do this? How did he accomplish it? Jesus' second question in the second story was this. Is the Sabbath a day to save a life? or destroy our life? Commentators are confused by these two questions because the first question, is it a day to do harm or do good, was clearly about the man with the withered hand. But many of the commentators say, the second question, Jesus wasn't thinking about that man anymore. When he said, save a life or destroy a life, you know what Jesus was thinking about actually in that moment? His own life. 
Is this a day to save my life or destroy my life? Now, what happened at the end of the story? It said in Luke 6, 11, they were filled with what? Fury. And the Greek word there is madness. It's to lose your mind. It's to take leave of one's senses. It's to be swept up in irrational anger. In fact, in Matthew's parallel count, in Matthew 12, 14, this is what we read. Right after this happened, after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, it says that the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. That's the first time in all of the Gospel of Matthew that the Pharisees start thinking, not just, we need to get rid of him, we need to shut him up, he's not good for us. It's the first time where it's recorded. Now they say, we have to kill him. So when Jesus said, is this a day to save a life or destroy a life? He knew that the only way to bring us real Sabbath was for his very life to be destroyed and consumed. And when he chose to heal that man on the Sabbath, he set in order a set of dominoes that led from that moment all the way to the cross where he would suffer. That's how big of an issue this is, that Jesus chose mercy even if it meant his own life being destroyed. And here's the question to us as his followers, can we choose mercy even if it costs us? Can we show mercy even if our reputation is destroyed? Even if our lives are destroyed, where is God calling us to do good and to enter rest? And to bring us rest, Jesus lost his. Jesus gave his rest up. He walked into chaos. He walked into suffering. He walked into your sin. He walked into your shame. But he emerged victorious over all of it. Why? To bring us rest. To bring us Sabbath. Because Jesus brings us Sabbath for good. Let's pray together.